Hello, life forms. Whatever dimension you live in, I am thrilled to welcome you to the podcast Physics for Fish. My name's Lizzie Mansfield. I am a tiny human and I love physics. And it turns out I'm not the only one. This week, I sit down with Dr. Katie Clough, who's promised to talk to me about the beginning of the universe. Let's do some physics for fish. Katie, thank you so much for coming on to Physics for Fish. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about you and your relationship with physics. So uh, I am currently a lecturer in the mathematics department, actually, at Queen Mary University in London. Um, so there's a slightly bizarre thing in the UK where physics and maths at some level, particularly in research, overlap quite a lot. And so whether you end up in the maths department or the physics department is, is sort of slightly arbitrary. Um, so I'm based in maths, but my main research area is general relativity. So understanding the curvature of space time and how that arises in different situations, in particular around black holes um, and at the beginning of the universe. So I, I don't know if the fish have come across general relativity yet. Is that something that they know anything about? Well, interestingly enough, we, we touched on it last week in the framework of time. So we were talking about Einstein and, and the way he sort of rediscovered time in terms of space time. But it'd be great to sort of recap what general relativity is, because I think we sort of focused on special relativity. So I guess all sort of for the purposes of, of what we're going to discuss today, all the fish need to know is that uh, general relativity tells you about this curvature of space time, which you know is this one thing, space and time. And uh, generally how it's talked about is in the context of orbital dynamics. So the fact that around the sun, the space time around the sun is very curved. And it's actually this curvature that you know, us on the earth moving around the sun, we feel that curvature and that actually makes us go in a circle around the sun. Um, so it's not a Newtonian force that's pulling us towards the sun, which is what we're kind of taught when we go to school. Um, it's actually a, a fact that we're moving on this curved four dimensional surface around the sun that's curved by the presence of, of the sun, which is a very energetic and massive body in the center. Um, and when we say curved, what do we mean? Because obviously, we can conceptualize curved in the sense of a ball is curved, the earth is curved. We kind of understand that. But how can space be curved, for example? Or, or indeed, how could time be curved? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I mean, so it's actually impossible, I think, to visualize curved four-dimensional space-time. So often people try and get you to imagine it in a lower dimensional space, right? So they try and imagine a sheet. So a sheet is basically a two-dimensional space because I can tell you where I am on the sheet by telling you two coordinates. So if I just imagine a sheet that's curved, so a stretchy sheet of, of rubber or something like that, and I imagine putting a ball on it, that ball would be the sun, and then that sheet would be obviously stretched around the ball. Um, and then if you imagine getting little marbles and then trying to roll them uh, on that rubber sheet, then you, you can imagine, you know, you have those toys or the things where you put coins into a machine and they kind of roll around and they do kind of roll in a circle around the the ball because the ball is kind of pulling the surface down and curving it um, and the natural motion on that kind of curved surface is, is is sort of to go around in a circle here you should hit pause go and get a ball a stretchy rubber sheet and some marbles do some rolling or a small to medium-sized planet and an empty patch of space-time are we saying that 
because space and time are kind of different dimensions of the same thing, which is space time, does that mean they're just kind of two sides of the same coin? So at some level, the answer is yes. You know, you, you can't unambiguously say this direction is time and this direction is space. Um, so there is some way in which space and time are kind of interchangeable. On the other hand, the way that we experience the universe very much kind of picks out a time direction. Like we experience um, time as something that we move through and we don't really have the option to go backwards in time in the same way as we have the option to go forwards and backwards in space. Um, so there is a distinction between the two. You know, there is a mathematical reason that at least one of these directions is special, but at the same time, there is a mixing between them. And so it's not clear for any one observer which one is, is which in an unambiguous way. So do you think that's specific to us? Like this idea that they're quite separate things seems to be more from a human perspective than from the physics itself. Yeah, that, that's a really another really, really interesting question. Um, and I mean, of course, the real answer is that, that no one really knows. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, all of this picture that I'm going to talk about as well is, is classical. So what that means is I'm not thinking about quantum effects. So when you start to think about quantum effects, there is a sense in which there is a time direction. Um, so when you have a time direction, things become probabilistic. So I don't necessarily know whether the photon will take path A or path B. But when we look in the classical picture, when we kind of ignore that quantumness of space-time, in a way, everything is set out. So if you tell me exactly how everything is at this particular moment, well, there's some element of sort of chaos in, in the, the interactions. But, you know, in principle, I could tell you everything would be later. But once you sort of mix in this quantum aspect of it, things don't become exactly deterministic. And so there is a sense in which time is not fixed. Uh, you know, the, the time evolution of the universe is not fixed ahead of time in the way it would be in a classical sense. But if you really wanted to reconcile these two pictures, you need a theory of quantum gravity. So, so we don't currently have a theory of quantum gravity, just, just to no, clarify. Okay. Just to clarify, the theory of quantum gravity is like, I don't know. It's the holy grail. The holy grail sure. of physics, exactly. Um, okay, so if the fish have one that they come across. If they have one, that would be great to know. I mean, if they perceive time and space differently, that would also be really great to know. Yeah. Um, I think it's possible. You know, this is how we experience the, the universe, partly as well because we're beings that have mass, actually, that, that comes into it. Um, and you could imagine that beings that were made of photons actually experience time differently. If you kind of sit on a photon time doesn't pass. Here you should hit pause, go and find a photon, and sit on it. Are you doing that? What's happening? What do you mean you're trapped inside a single moment where time and space have lost all meaning and you see infinity stretching out in front of you? Well, I guess we might not see you again. For those of you we haven't lost to the space-time continuum, well done for not doing what a podcast told you to. Now my favourite question of all time and space... How did the universe begin? Right. Uh, well, that's, it's going to be a very quick answer because actually we don't really know. People often say things like time began at the Big Bang. But if you really dig into what we know about that moment, really, we, we don't actually know that much. What we know is that we don't know anything. Um, so all the mathematics tells us is that at that point, we can't go further back in time. We can't complete the path of someone who's come out of that moment and say what happened before. Um, so we can certainly say that at some moment, 
a lot of the stuff in the universe was in you know one place so we, we talked earlier about the fact that space-time is curved um, so I guess the key way in which it applies to the universe as a whole is that time is curved and when time is curved the way we see that is actually that we we think we're moving apart over time we what we observe is that galaxies so clusters of galaxies actually move apart over time um, and we we say that the universe is expanding but what's really happening is that it's curved in the time direction and then if we follow that backwards in time so obviously if everything is moving apart now we follow that backwards and what we imagine is that everything is gradually coming closer and closer together and so at some point we were all in the same place um, you know we were all at the same point um, and so it's that point that we often refer to as the big bang and that point is both spatial and temporally the same is that right yeah it's an event if you like what we, we say it's an event so it's a point at space and time yeah, so it's usually labeled, as I say, T is zero, time is zero. But um, in a sense, it's just where our theory breaks down. That kind of is an arbitrary mark that we, we put on that point. Uh, I know this, this may sound like a stupid question, but if the universe is everything that there is mm. and the universe is expanding, what is the universe expanding into? Uh, and you must get that question a hundred times a day. Yeah, from, from many people. And I, but it's a really good question. It's not a silly question. It's a good question. And so I have a way of trying to think about this that helps me at least to visualize it. And again, it involves, as we talked about already, kind of imagining things in a slightly lower dimension. So, you know, if you're trying to imagine curved four-dimensional space-time, everything's really confusing. If the fish can imagine that, like us, they are constrained to live just on the surface of the Earth. So that's fairly easy, hopefully, for them to imagine. If they then imagine a second thing, which is slightly weirder, which is that there's some law of moving on the earth that only allows them to move north. So they can move sort of east and west if they like, mm -hmm. um, but at all times, they always have to take a step in the north direction. Everyone's heading north. Um, so obviously this isn't what we experience on the earth, but this is a bit like what happens with time. So with time, as I was saying, we, you know, we can only move forwards in time. We can't move backwards in time. Mm -hmm. And so we can, you know, we can move in space. So that's like moving east to west. But we always have to sort of take some steps forward in time, which is, you know, we can see that as moving north on the Earth. So then where we are now is like you're in Australia um, and I'm in New Zealand. And so if we continue forwards, what's going to happen is we're going to move north towards the equator. When we get to the equator, we'll be further apart than we are now. So we wouldn't really say then, oh, the Earth has expanded between us. That wouldn't be the way that we described it, because we're not used to thinking about time in the same way as we're used to thinking about space. Um, but it, it's really the same thing. What's happened is that not that you know, the universe has expanded between us as we get further apart. It's really that we're moving on this curved space-time surface where naturally our paths kind of diverge because that surface is curved. I mean, this is quite a hard sort of... <laughs> it blows your mind a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, but I think, it, you know, if you can like, you know, perhaps this is something that you do need to think about a few times before you, you kind of accept it. But this is really the picture to have in your mind and then this question, you know, how do we think about the beginning of time? You know, what's outside the universe? Yeah. Um, 
then obviously that's like thinking about moving off the surface of the earth. So in a way, the analogy is not necessarily good there because actually we don't know if our four-dimensional space-time is embedded in some higher dimension. So string theory is very concerned with the potential for higher dimensions, but so far there's no evidence. But, you know, you could imagine that that our four-dimensional space-time is embedded in some higher way. It's just not clear, you know, how we would get off the surface of our universe to go into these sort of higher dimensional spaces. If you'd like more information on this, grab a copy of my book, Escaping to the Tenth Dimension, available inside your nearest light cone. Please note, books are not available in some solar systems or in physical form. And it works quite well, I think, also to think about the Big Bangs. If you go back in time on this fictional Earth where you can only move north, at some point we would have both started at the South Pole. And what happened before then? You know, we end up sort of on top of each other. And how do we all fit? Everyone that's on the planet, how did they all fit at the the South Pole at this moment when we were all there? Where do they go before then? Because there's no Earth beyond the South Pole. We can't go any further south. We would have to, again, go off the surface of the Earth to somewhere else. Sure. Um, And so this is the kind of same problem that we have in understanding the Big Bang. And, And what happened before then is that we kind of run out of, space and time it's a almost a closed surface and we just don't know how to continue it yeah you run the racetrack all the way to that point and then you go oh beyond this point nobody knows yeah and there's no way that we could know and we have no no data right we have no information well we have some data i mean we have this sort of early picture of the universe um the cosmic microwave background radiation so um it just looks like a kind of big fuzzy dotty picture it's not a very exciting picture but it's shown a lot um, in cosmology Um, and it shows a picture not immediately after the big bang but fairly soon afterwards and that gives us some constraints on what the universe should be like and it also actually creates a problem in terms of this big bang model the problem is that this the this cosmic microwave background picture tells us that everything is very homogeneous in the universe so everything is very smooth And what this tells us is that the universe needs to be a lot older than it is. So a lot older than if you kind of naively continue everything back to this this South Pole point. And so people have tried to propose ways in which we could explain this. Um, So one way is to kind of change the shape of the bottom of the Earth. So I talked about us moving on the bottom of a sphere, but actually we don't know that our universe is a spherical shape. What it could actually be is as we go towards the the South Pole, it actually turns into a kind of funnel. So if it's a funnel, you can imagine you don't end up at the bottom of the ball. You end up sliding down the edges of this this funnel shape. And so we never meet. This funnel goes on forever. It gives us a lot more time before we actually end up at the same point. So at, at the bottom of the funnel, it might sort of smooth off, but it just gives us much more time before we actually reach this point where we're all on top of each other and there's this big bang. So this is not a different model to the big bang. You still have the big bang at the end of the funnel. It's just it, it takes longer for us to to come out of that. Is that right? That's right. So so this is actually the model that people call inflation. Um, so what it's actually doing is, is making the universe sort of blow up quite fast at the beginning. Um, but what it actually does, the, the goal of inflation is to try and give us this extra time for the universe to have become much more homogeneous, to have become much more smooth in the way that we see in this early picture. This is one of the things that we do try and understand about the early universe is 
is really what is this shape? You know, is it a funnel? Is it an hourglass shape, for example, that, you know, we go into sort of very thin neck and then we expand out again into another expansion and contraction cycle. And that's called bouncing cosmology. Is it a ball? Is it a funnel? Or do we live in a bouncing universe? Without people like Katie, we would never know. So trying to understand this shape of which the universe is is curved in, in space and time, that's actually, for me, how I see this question of understanding the like the beginning of time and the the early universe. You said the universe would have to be a lot older than it is. But obviously, we've only been around for really not many years in (laughs) in this kind of timescale. So so how do we know how the universe is? How do we get a sense of that? Yeah, um, so so there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of hints for this. Um, So there are certain very old stars or galaxy clusters. Um, We know that they must have a certain age. They must have evolved for a certain time. Um, And so that gives us a kind of minimum of how old the universe needs to be. Um, We also have just so many measurements now. We can really trace the history. And there's a really well-fitting model that tells us exactly how old the universe is. This is something that's, well, I was going to say it it fits fairly well, but there's actually been quite a big tension in it recently where actually there is some discrepancy in this model. But in general, we understand quite well the late evolution of the universe. So the time from when this early picture of the cosmic microwave background radiation was taken up until now, that whole picture of evolution of galaxies and stars and us actually is not too badly understood. What's really, really difficult to get at is the time before this picture was taken, uh, where we really don't have any data. So we have to kind of extrapolate backwards. And once you start extrapolating back from something, you know, where you can't check it against other measurements, that's when you're into kind of dangerous territory in science generally. So it becomes much more theoretical than much less definite. Yeah, I mean, it it becomes sometimes almost philosophical. Yeah. What should we expect at the beginning of our universe? I said, oh, well, we didn't expect everything to be very smooth um, and and homogeneous in the universe. That's why we think we must have had more time for everything to become smooth. Um, But why don't we expect that, right? Why don't we expect the universe to just pop into existence, you know, where every part of it looks the same. Maybe quantum gravity creates universes that are very smooth. And so there's actually quite a disagreement sometimes between different people in what is natural, what should we expect. With all this talk of smoothness, I went and made myself a smoothie. But what do we mean when we say a smooth universe? What I'm currently imagining is if you have a balloon full of cake mixture or or something, (laughs) And you blow it up and blow it up and then it pops and splatters outwards. <laughs> You'll get a sort of uneven distribution of cake mixture across your kitchen. <laughs> is that a fairly good analogy for this like smoothness idea? Yeah, I mean, I guess what you have in mind is, is kind of the right thing. I mean, people expect this quantum gravity to create a mess. You know, if you threw cake mixture everywhere and it gave you a very uniform layer of cake mixture everywhere, you'd be very surprised by that. You would think, you know, how has it not managed to get a blob over here and a blob over there? So yeah, it's really the uniformness of it. So in this picture that I talked about, you know, it's giving you some kind of intensity of radiation at every point in the universe. You know, if I asked a million different people to pick a number between one and a hundred and everyone picked 42, I would find that weird. I would expect some level of randomness Um, in the the distribution. So my explanation would be, okay, if everyone picked 42, they must have had time to talk to each other and to agree between them that they were going to choose the number 42. 
And so that's why in our universe, what we think is, you know, if we're seeing the same value everywhere, that's because different parts of the universe have been able to kind of smooth out. So I, I guess if you think about it in the same way as, you know, if you put a hot thing in a room, gradually the temperature becomes even over the whole room. So there's a tendency over time for things to kind of smooth out. Uh, there's a tendency to reach a point where everything's kind of the same everywhere or for a you know, a gas to spread out in a box. But yeah, your cake mixture thing is nice. Explosions, you know, this is what we, we kind of have in mind. It feels like there's another kind of related question here that we haven't covered yet, which is a, a question about size. Because obviously, if you're only looking at a tiny bit of the universe and you realise some specific property of that bit of the universe, for example, it's it's particularly smooth, it may just be that we're looking at a very small section of cake mixture that happens to be quite smooth on a tiny bit of wool. And presumably we can't look at most of the universe because it's so big. Mm. How can we deal with that problem of, we don't know how big the universe is, or do we? Well, no, we don't. No, you're absolutely right. We absolutely don't. And we can only see a certain portion of it. So because light takes time to travel, you know, we only can see a certain distance. Um, and so there might be much more universe beyond what we can actually see and observe. Um, and we would never necessarily have access to it. What you're describing, this idea that beyond our little patch that we live in is, you know, is all messy. This is actually exactly the theory of inflation. So it's, it's exactly related to, to this idea of, you know, everything was very messy initially, but then everything got blown up and we ended up in just one very small patch of this mess. We have a kind of boundary, right, of what we can observe because mm. there's only so far that light has traveled since the Big Bang. Yes. So does that mean that we can't know anything at all about what's beyond there? Are we completely in the dark about the kind of the thing outside of this, like, what's it called? A cosmic light horizon? Yeah, a cosmological horizon. Yeah. Um, so it's not just related to the idea that that light takes time to propagate, although that, that is a part of it. Um, if we were just waiting for the light to reach us, then we could, after a very, very long period of time, you know, light would reach us from everywhere. If space-time was flat, um, the problem that we have is we have this curvature in time, so we're moving apart. So, so this is what gives us mainly the, the cosmological horizon is this idea that if, you know, if we send a signal to each other, but if we're sufficiently far apart, the expansion of the universe is faster than the light speed of this signal traveling between us. So we're moving apart too rapidly for this signal to ever come from you to me. So I want to touch on something that you just said. The universe could be expanding faster than light speed. So how do we reconcile that idea with what we know from Einstein, who said that there is a, a universal speed limit, which is the speed of light? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and it's something that, as I say, yeah, people people have worried about, but it's actually okay. Um, so the, the reason it's okay is because it doesn't actually change how you can cause events or what we call causality. Um, so the real restriction is on whether events can sort of communicate with each other before you know a certain time has passed so so if we're separated by a certain distance you know we need to send a signal for me to communicate to you so if I want to influence something that's far away from me there'll be a certain time delay before I can send a signal and get something there if I could instantly influence it 
um, then in a sense, it would break this, this rule of causality. Everything breaks down. Everything breaks down. You can do all of the sort of crazy things like go back in time and, and you know, kill your grandparents and therefore never exist. If you break causality, everything breaks down. Sure. So the reason that this expansion, this faster than light expansion doesn't break this actually comes back to this, this picture that I have about, you know, it's not that things are really moving apart or expanding. It's actually that we're just on this curved surface where the distance between us is actually getting bigger over time. So I will still not be able to communicate over some distance. If I send a signal, it's still only traveling at the speed of light. As it travels, you know, the distance is getting further because it's on this curved surface. But it's not that I can actually get a signal between us faster than than we're moving apart. So if my planet and yours are sufficiently far away from each other, this podcast transmission will never reach you because of the curvature of space and time. It is a kind of a trick, right? But what's really prohibited is that we could somehow communicate over some, some space or distance that is longer than the time that it would take for the light ray to pass between us. So that's what gives us the cosmological horizon. Yes. So the, the cosmological horizon, yeah, comes from this idea that certain parts of the universe are just moving away from us faster than the speed of light. So they cannot send signals or if they did send signals towards us, those signals would never reach us. So that is a, that's, again, sort of consistent with this idea of causality. And if the fish, if they live in a different place in the universe, they're going to have a different cosmological horizon, right? That's right. So, yeah, uh, you know, different observers have different cosmological horizons. I guess there's this sort of fundamental assumption in cosmology generally that we don't occupy a sort of special place in the universe. And again, that's, you know, something of a philosophical assumption. In a way, it's a kind of modest thing to assume that, you know, we don't anymore believe that we're kind of the center of the universe. We're not special. <laughs> we're yeah. not special. Um, you know, so... So what we kind of believe is that, you know, if we did, if we were an observer in a different part of the universe, we would still broadly see the same sort of thing. But, you know, maybe we're in a completely different part of the universe that has completely different properties, you know, maybe different values for physical parameters. You know, the, the value of the electron charge is different or the mass of the proton is different. I mean, you know, these kind of things are theoretically possible we just don't know. And we, as I say, we kind of take the minimal assumption, which is to assume that things look roughly the same everywhere. But that is, again, you know, that's an assumption. So the fish might have a totally different reality altogether. They might. Um, and if that is the case, we probably can't get this podcast to them either, because it's going to be very difficult to communicate. <laughs> there is this assumption that if we see the world immediately around us, it must be the same across the entire universe. Right. Maybe we're just in a tiny part of the playpen. I think that's a, that's a really important thing to think of to sort of question these assumptions that underlie a lot of the work that we do I mean, you know as scientists we actually have a tendency to take those for granted that kind of dogma that you you know you learn as you pass through your education and it it takes someone quite brilliant in a way to actually really question those deep assumptions and to see see the ways in which they could be wrong um, so it's always it's always worth thinking about these kind of questions. Thank you to the fish for leading us here. <laughs> <laughs> it's always helpful to think of higher dimensional fish. <laughs> Thank you so much to Katie Clough for talking us through the beginning of the universe. Join me next week where I ask more silly questions to physicists. Until then, stay curved and don't kill your grandparents. Mm -hmm.
Goodbye. Fish, 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 fish,